0: Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, Um, For those of you who
1: are just joining us, we're finishing off a sermon series this morning. For those of you who have been with us over the past couple months, we're finishing off the sermon series we've been in called Questioning Christianity. In this series, we have covered the questions that skeptics and doubters have of the Christian faith, and we've also looked at some of the primary critiques our culture has of us as Christians. So some of the things we've dealt with are questions like, How can you say there's only one way? Or Christians say that they believe in God, but there's also suffering or injustice in the world. How do you reconcile these? How do you deal with science and doubt and faith? And the critiques of Christians that we dealt with earlier back in June and early July, like Christians being judgmental or hypocritical or too political or our views on sexuality and how they align or challenge the views of the world. The goal in this whole series has actually been understanding. It's to increase our awareness so that we think through our approach to these issues and questions better and actually think through them. We've called this church and each of us to increase vulnerability, humility, and grace. And hopefully in the process, There's also been a benefit to those who have come through here, or even are here today, who are doubters and skeptics, or have been seriously hurt by Christians in the church. Today we finish this series under the title Calling. Calling would be a perfect title for a Labor Day sermon about vocations, being a student or homemaker or in the IT department or business owner, but we're not looking at that version of calling today. We're looking at it with a specific view in mind our calling as disciples of Jesus, our calling as a Christian church in a post-Christian culture, and our posture towards that culture. So we're in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. He's calling his disciples to be salt and light. And I'm sure if you have been in churches in the past, you've heard a sermon on this where they described the metaphor and went into detail very briefly on that. Light, an obvious metaphor, but in the Bible, it had to do with the presence of God. It almost always referred to truth or hope. And obviously, in a very literal way, light pushes out darkness. If you go in a dark room and turn on a light, But spiritually speaking, light drives forth the evil and decay of the world. Salt, as probably many of you have heard, you could make it the obvious connection even today, had to do with seasoning and preserving things. But it was also absolutely vital in the ancient world. It was a necessity. One commentator noted 16 different ways salt was used in the ancient world but primarily we think of it as seasoning or preserving something. And in the midst of using this language of salt and light, Jesus, of course, is is in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, Jesus calls his disciples, as John Stott put it, to be a counter-culture, a culture within the culture. In order to be a culture within the culture, if you're going to be salt, you actually have to get as... One writer put it out of the salt shaker, right? We're called to be a lamp on a stand, not under a bushel or a basket, as Jesus says. Salt, for it to be doing anything, has to actually come in contact with the food. Light has to push on the actual darkness. In other words, what Jesus is calling his disciples and us to by being salt and light is not to be separate and avoiding the culture, But engaged and seeking to affect the culture. To make it a little more clear, Jesus uses this other metaphor a city on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now cities, just to think about that one a little bit more, cities of the ancient world were integral. We don't think about them as much anymore, but a city or a village, and whether that was a walled defensive city, or even just a village, a collection of houses where a dozen or so families lived, was necessary for safety, for hospitality, even for law and justice. People thought of the world outside of cities as places where there was no law, no rule of law. But you entered a city and there was elders, Elders who ensured rule of law. People were side by side to care for one another if somebody was sick or injured. Cities were places of refuge. In the ancient world, actually in the Old Testament times, when they settled the land of Palestine, God, in the law of Moses, put forth certain cities to be cities of refuge, which basically meant this. If you were falsely accused or accidentally murdered somebody or their animal, you would flee to the city of refuge so that people wouldn't exact vengeance on you. You went to that city of refuge where you would have a court trial. It was a place of safety and protection and rule of law. But let's take it a step further and imagine darkness in the ancient world. And if I could get some help, somebody close that very back door there. We're going to make it just a little bit darker because you think about the ancient world. One of the things when Jesus says a city on a hill, we forget that there was very little light in the ancient world, right? In the ancient world, there was no electricity. So late at night, it got very, very, very dark. And we're going to make it just a step darker here to imagine what it would have been like on a given night. when there was no light. Maybe just a little bit of the stars, but the rains come in and you're a shepherd. You're a shepherd who's been out for multiple days having very little sleep, completely weary and worn out, and a little disoriented, and the rain starts to fall. Or you're a traveler in the ancient world, far, far, far from home, and you just need a place of shelter, a place for food, maybe even a bed, or, You are deeply, deeply afraid. You are a refugee, running for your life. Because you are of a certain clan, there are people coming to kill you. You need a city of refuge. And around a bend, you come, and off in the distance, you see a light. And you know it's a city. And you've come to safety. You head towards that place. All the darkness is being driven out as you head straight towards that city. A city set on a hill was a place of refuge and safety and hospitality. In the ancient world, it was a place of real hope. not metaphoric hope. it was real hope. And the question Jesus is posing to us as disciples is, are we? Are we as a church a place of real hope, of refuge? of safety and hospitality? Is your family, are you, that place of real hope? A city set on a hill. That's what we're called to be. A counter culture within the culture In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about disciples. Their heart, their motives, their aims are meant to be different from the culture, a counterculture. It's supposed to be different in this way. Think about some of the things in the Sermon on the Mount if you've heard of it before. Jesus talks about money and success and sex. And he says disciples of Jesus are supposed to do different things with money and success and sex than the the non-religious atheistic culture but we're also supposed to be different than the religious culture. What we do with prayer or public opinion or even our enemies is supposed to be different than the way religious people treat those things. We are to be different, a counterculture. But the Christian counterculture is supposed to be within the culture and engaged in it as well, the way Jesus is talking about it. And the words that we would use are, we are to be attracted to and attractive to those with whom we most disagree. If you were a disciple of Jesus Christ, you were to be attracted to and attractive to those with whom you most disagree. And so that's a question for each of us. Are you actually drawn to people who most disagree with your faith? And are they drawn to you? That's what it is to be salt and light. Let's take for an example two people at extremes in Vienna, in the Vienna area, the broader Vienna area. Two extremes that you can find on a very short drive or walk out of this building are the very poor and some very rich. The very rich with their 1.9 or 2.2 million dollar rebuilt houses and great vacations and the very poor most likely struggling with English as a second language, struggling to find work or places to live, struggling to put food on the table. And if we think about the very poor and the very rich within a few miles of this place right here, which are you most attracted to? And which do you wish would just live somewhere else? It would be a better place if we didn't have them. Which do you tend to say, it's just not my ministry? That's somebody else to take care of them. And which ones are we as a church called to draw and be drawn to? With whom are we to engage? I think, I think Jesus is calling us as salt and light, as a city on a hill, to engage both the poor and the rich to step into broken people, and broken places, and broken homes, to care for the physically and financially needy, as well as the socially, psychologically, and spiritually needy. And when you do that, if you've ever done that, you will find this, it is difficult. It is time consuming, and it is costly, but it is where we are to be as a city on a hill, as salt and light in our community. Doing the costly work of stepping into broken lives and spiritualities and homes. We are called to look like Jesus and to point everyone to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. Jesus sums it up in verse 16 when He said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see. Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Our actions in this world should point people to Jesus, not to us. Right? You don't go, oh, that was great salt. You say that was great soup. No one should walk away from you being impressed. They should actually feel better about themselves. No one should enter a small group and say, man, that that guy knows a lot about the Bible. They should walk away from the small group because of you saying, what a great small group. Because you're pointing them to Jesus and not to you. Let your light shine so that they may see God. But if we do that, here's what's gonna be true. The Bible says, Jesus says, many are still going to reject you Many will still reject you, even if you nail it, even if you do everything perfectly balanced. Jesus talks about persecution here. He says in verses 10 and 11, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now I want us to be careful when we use that term persecuted, especially here in America. We should use that term very lightly because there is a grave difference between how we might apply persecution today in Vienna or wherever you work and live and the way much of the world has to deal with it as Christians. Nevertheless, we are entering and we live in a current culture which is not Christian. We are in a post-Christian culture. You might even at places see it as anti-Christian And the reality is that where the current culture is, there will be times when you or the church or we collectively will be mocked, find yourself outcast, even officially marginalized. It's possible that even socially or legally you will deal with ramifications. Some people over the next 10 to 20 years because of faithfulness will lose their jobs. They will. Some will lose friends. or our place in the community, or the ability to worship in a public facility. We might. It is likely, if the culture continues more and more post-Christian, that the church is going to shrink. But I am confident disciples will continue to grow. We will grow deeper, and we will grow in number. Because what you're going to find is a winnowing, a sifting, a refining. When it becomes more difficult to be a Christian, you know what you find? People who don't really mean it get out quickly. It's not worth it to be in it. Nominal Christianity is going to be gone. Discipleship is going to go deeper. And people will come to faith, authentic faith in Jesus Christ. But as we think about persecution, we need to be careful, again, Jesus says in verses 10 and 11, they will revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil falsely against you for two reasons. For righteousness and on my account. For righteousness can also mean justice, for doing what is right and just and true. And on my account, meaning on Jesus' account. That's the reason to be persecuted. Not because you're obnoxious, or a blowhard, or culturally insensitive, or self-righteous, or tactless. In other words, don't assume if a year from now friends reject you, or people are saying things against you, it's necessarily because of Jesus. It may not be because of righteousness or Jesus that they are rejecting you. We have to be very aware of that. And we need one another. We need the spirit, and we need humility. And we look at our lives, and what we should be looking at is actually the Beatitudes. Think about the things that Jesus described. If these things describe us, then we will be persecuted if we are for the right things. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, those who extend mercy, the pure in heart, those who are bringing peace and making peace. Think about how different this is than a culture of anger or defensiveness or viciousness. Instead of that, we should be mourning, weeping when we see sin. Mourning and weeping for a culture that doesn't have God. Our desire should not be to be on top and in control, but our desire is for God according to this. Everything on this list says we surrender power and don't demand what's fair. We don't demand our rights. Being persecuted is also a litmus test to faithfulness, quite frankly. Many of us as Christians, and I find this to be true in my life, I'm hoping that I'm not the only one, we're either loving but not truthful or we're truthful but not loving. If you are loving, open, generous, kind, but you never point to the truth, you will never be persecuted. You'll be cowardly, hiding Jesus, putting it under a bushel, but probably accepted. Or you'll be truthful, the other side of Christianity, as we tend to be truthful. We have all the right doctrines, we tell people where they're wrong, but we're not loving. We don't extend grace, forgiveness, we don't lead with humility. And when that's the case, if we're persecuted, it's probably because you're being persecuted for you, not for the gospel. Our calling, according to Jesus, is to be truthful and loving, to be persecuted for Christ, to be salt and light, as well as meek and merciful. This is what it is to be a counterculture, a city on a hill. Look, over the next decade or two, many people will reject Christ, they will reject Christianity, and they will reject you. But some, over the next decade or so, are gonna come seeking. They will have been burned, hurting, broken by a sinful and fallen world that we all live in. And they will come seeking refuge or healing, shelter, safety, hope they will come to a city on a hill, especially if our counterculture is the extended family that we've been talking about, a place of humble and vulnerable and sacrificial, grace-giving friends who experience God through Jesus Christ by grace. That is the sort of community that people will start seeking. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it gonna look like to be a city on a hill? ask questions like are we a place of hope? Do we feel safe to somebody? Are we affecting anyone? So here's some questions. Is there a seat in your small group for an admitted adulterer? Would they be willing to enter? Or would they assume your judgmental rejection of them? If an atheist moved in next door, are you able to be her neighbor in all the ways that Jesus talked about being a neighbor? In this church, can a high school student struggle, even fail miserably, with their sinfulness? Or is this not a place for them? Can Christ Church Vienna provide refuge to new immigrants? care for aging widows, and hope for broken marriages? Can we do it in such a way that the community around us would never want our counterculture to leave? Can we be a city on a hill for Vienna, for the DC area, for Thoreau Middle School or Woodson High School, for Park Street or Vale Road, for the Pentagon? for that blockular building that's just off that other street in Tyson's where you work? Can we be a city on a hill wherever we go? Wherever we live? Salt, light, and those beatitudes, the blesseds. Here's the reality, you and I can't do it. We're not gonna be good enough, we are going to fail. We will aim in that direction, but ultimately we cannot change the world. And we cannot uphold this calling to be salt and light well enough. But the gospel tells us there is one who did. Think about it. There was one who was meek and merciful. But instead of receiving mercy as the Beatitudes promise, he received a whip and a crown of thorns so that you and I might receive mercy from God. There was one who truly hungered and thirsted for righteousness and justice. But instead of being satisfied as the promise is there, he was thirsting as he hung dying from the cross. And he suffered injustice so that you and I might be justified, made right with God. There was one who was pure in heart, a peacemaker. But instead of seeing God as the promise is, he was forsaken by the Father driven from the presence of God so that you and I might know God face to face. Jesus is the one who did this and did it for us. Jesus and his death on the cross is both our model for living this out and the way we can live this out with freedom. The cross is the model for being salt and light and blessed while also being reviled and persecuted. He gave up everything in obedience to the Father, trusting God to work it all out. That is a model for us to live out. But the cross is also the way, and we need freedom and not just guilt, right? The cross frees us from guilt because it says there's only one who can save this world, and it's not us. It's not you, it's not this church. And the cross tells us we need him just as much as the world does. It gives us confidence and it humbles us. It lets us know that when we do put our faith and trust in him, no matter what happens, we have everything we need. The cross also frees us from fear. And what I've found as we've been going through this is a lot of fear. Many Christians are very fearful of where the culture is going. It's a very anti Christian culture. They're they're, they're legalizing sin. I mean, what's next? What are we going to do? It's a lot of hand wringing, anxiousness. Remember this the gospel does not end in in, in a grave. The gospel does not end in a grave, it ends in an empty tomb. Jesus Christ wins. God is in control. No matter what happens in this culture or this world, Jesus rose from the dead. Trust the one who died, who rose, and don't be afraid. That's it. Let's pray. God our Father, You sent your son, Jesus Christ, in the world to save us from our sin. We are no different than the culture around us. We reject you, we live our own way, and we deal with brokenness and sin, the cause of our own hand and one another. Forgive us. Forgive us for fear and judgmentalness. Forgive us for hiding and retreating. Give us the boldness to be a city on a hill a willingness to salt the world around us, to drive out darkness, and to be people and homes and a church that is a place of refuge and hope in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. (laughs)
2: ceaseless praise let them flow in ceaseless praise take my will and make it thine it shall be no longer mine take my heart it is thine all it shall be the royal throne. It shall be the royal throne.